Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? This is Classified. This is Mocha Only. This is Sean Price. Yeah, Ghostface Killer. This is Quake Matthews. What's up, my brother Ali? Five Diggy Tribe Core Quest. Eloquent, man. What up, Styles Peter Ghost. This is Absol. This is KO. And you listening to The Come Up Show, where that feel-good music lives. It's the show that you come up on, yeah. This is the spot that you come up strong. What's going on? Welcome to The Come Up Show podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Martin Bauman. And today I have a very special guest for you. If you're at all interested in Canadian hip-hop history, this man played a big part in it. He's seen and done it all firsthand on the East Coast, from Down By Law to Modern World Thing, to Howtown Projects to First Words. Over the years, he's mentored everyone from Classified to Scratch Bastard to Uncle Fester, showing them the ropes and in turn watching them go on to achieve success. Now he's getting a new taste of the spotlight after Questlove of the Roots, yes, that Questlove, called him the hip-hop instrumental president. That's right, my guest for today is DJ and producer Joe Run Bombay. I caught up with Joe Run to talk about Halifax hip-hop history, helping other artists out along the way, getting shouted out by Questlove, and lots more. Take a listen. Why don't we start by exploring a little bit of the history of hip-hop in Halifax and how that intersects with your own career. Where does it all begin for you? Where it all begins for me? Where would I even... For me, there's two. There was two, two or three beginning points for me because I came, I left, I came, I left. Uh, my first exposure was when Rapper's Delight came out in 1979. But for me, I didn't pinpoint that as being rap or the beginning of hip hop because it was just a record that came out that was like everything else that was out in disco. It just so happened they weren't singing. So even though that was a beginning point for me, I didn't tie it to a culture because I didn't know. It wasn't until the tapes started coming in from New York where you would where you would get these tapes taped off the radio. And I don't mean tapes that you buy it at the store, a company made recorded in the recording studio tapes, because there's a translation lost in those. I'm talking about tapes that were taped off of 98.7 KISS FM and WBLS in New York, where you would hear music being cut up, scratched up, and you would hear culture in it, where you would hear, say, like, for example, they would let the commercial tape, and you would hear a a commercial for Billy D. Williams doing Colt 45, which would play later in understanding lyrics later on you would hear uh, the announcer come on, introduce the DJ, and then talk about what happened that day in New York. Like, you know, we want to give a shout out to everybody on the the subway cleanup that's going on in New York right now for 1985. And all these little things would be clues that you wouldn't get from just a regular rap tape. You would hear what's actually going on in New York and then listen to the music and then put the rest of it together. So that, that, for me, was kind of the beginning of, okay, when, maybe this is something. So those tapes that were going around, the DJ Red Alert tapes, uh, they were spreading through a guy named Eric Melbranch in your neighborhood. Yes. And Eric used to, I used to meet up with Eric at a donut shop in the North End, and he used to sell Kangles, Cazelle glasses, like DMC's glasses, uh, Adidas, Shaltos, and these tapes. 
So Hugo to New York, see the culture, be right in the middle of the culture and saying, I need to bring this back. I need to expose everybody to this stuff because you won't see this on TV in Nova Scotia. You won't, you know, uh, there was black music here in the neighborhood all along, but it was not so much a lot of rap because it didn't just jump in. We were all bumping Rick James, Chic, all that stuff, R&B, post-disco roller bogey. So Eric kind of like brought in the, the other music that was going alongside of it because these red alert tapes would play break records that were like disco records, but only play the breaks on it. And he would play these back to back with rap records. So we got to hear both sides and understand that this R&B, these break, these breakbeat records was also part of hip hop. So you got to hear that, but you wouldn't hear. See, if you bought like a Fat Boys album, right? You wouldn't. You wouldn't get all that extra stuff. Right. This is something that could only come from the tapes. Uh, something that you also talked about. I listened to in the CKDU interview, uh, and you were talking a little bit about how the importance of basketball tournaments in Halifax for spreading hip hop music. Tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, Those uh, basketball tournaments. I didn't really. Okay. They. They had the basketball tournaments at the gym, right? I'm not really a sports guy, so I lived across the street, and you would you would know right away the tournaments going on because the entire street was full of parked cars. And these cars were like, had hydraulics. They were souped-up cars, right? Mm-hmm. You would only see this in, like, you know, in, in neighborhoods, that, you know, where poor people would, you know, when they finally do get enough money to get a car, they soup it up as much as they can. And, you know, they put the, um, they put the rims on it. Well, they didn't really have rims then, but it was the equivalent of putting your rims on your car. So when we seen the parking lot full of these cars, almost looking like limousines around May, we knew that the basketball tournaments were happening because a lot of these people came from out of town too. And inside they had the games and outside for the for the people that they didn't go in maybe because they weren't interested or they were taking a break from outside they would play basketball outside and it would be like you know not an organized game but more like a, just a street basketball thing outside of the venue you know kind of like if you have a rap show indoors on stage and there's a bunch of kids outside in the street at that same rap show but they're not inside but they're having a cipher it's the same thing. They had a little basketball game outside and a big one inside. And I was always at the little one outside because people would bring their ghetto blasters, their boxes, and show off how big their boxes were, how much bass was in them. And these boxes were big enough that you could sit on them like a chair. So I knew one of those dudes. I grew up with him. And he was in the game and then came out to play outside too. So he would play these tapes and I would sit on the box and watch them play their, play their games. And um, I would listen to the tapes as they went. They just had, you know, they had the cassette decks that when it reaches the end of the tape, it flips by itself. So I would sit there and listen to the whole tape. By the time they were ready to go home when the sun was going down, I would go up to the guy that's coming to get his box and say, hey, do you think I can get a copy of that tape? And most of the times they would let me copy or they would give me the phone number or this guy, next time you see him in the schoolyard, 
this is the guy to look for. And I would look for that guy. Sometimes they would be, well, what do you got that you can trade? Or that'll be a certain price. Go get the money and then I'll give you the tape. But either way, there wasn't a lot of people just said no. Because at that time, people did want the music to spread. And, it was, and I'd made an effort to spread the music too. But it's funny because if you didn't live in the North End and you heard rap, I mean, now you hear rap and you, you it's a different thing. But then there was people that were like, eh, it'll die in a year or this sucks or, you know. And as soon as like, say the Beastie Boys album came out, people loved it. And I, I said this in the interview and the answer was, oh, but they had electric guitars. And I did forgot to say, LL Cool J had electric guitars too, but people were not, you know, only people in black neighborhoods then lived around that area understood rap. Do you think it was still a race thing at the time and people weren't ready to embrace it yet? I think there's so many ways to look at this because MTV, when it first started, they were only playing white artists. So, and I was young then, right? I remember seeing like Duran Duran all over the place and not understanding or making to put two, two, two and two together to know that the music, as soon as I walked into the, my neighborhood, everything that was on MTV was nowhere to be heard. But everything in that neighborhood, you would never hear on MTV. So, if I turn on MTV, I would see Duran Duran, you would see Glass Tiger, you know, you see Wham. But then when I go home and I walk through the neighborhood, people are playing music out of their windows and they're playing Houdini. They're playing Rick James. They're playing Chic. They're playing Fonda Ray. So I kind of knew that there was something about MTV that I, I, I was too young to really understand poli- the racial politics so I never questioned it, but in but looking back, I think the power of suggestion is what made it that way. Because these kids didn't know if they if they knew the politics of why they were only playing white videos. Maybe they would make the decision on their own to say, "Hey, this is wrong," but they're too young and they follow because they don't know, right? So when Run DMC finally had their video played, and when Michael Jackson, well, first Michael Jackson got his video played, and that was a big deal. And then after that, Run DMC was the first rap artists to have their video played on MTV and much music regularly, and that was Rockbox. But they had to appeal to the rock crowd, so they had to have electric guitars in their song, and they had to have a certain image to so rock people would see hey, these guys are artists. Not that they were selling out because they were still themselves, but they kind of had to like, okay, we're going to take this music that is holding us back. We're going to do it better than you. And we're going to come and they had this video called King of Rock where they walked into the Rock and Roll Museum uh, Hall of Fame in this video and they were asked to leave. And the beginning of the video, they kick down the doors, they go through the museum, they trash it, they take the Beatles wigs and they throw their tango on top of the Paul McCartney, you know, they're ripping the, um, glasses off of a, a statue of Elton John. And that was the only way that people, that hip hop was going to get hurt. Bum rush the show. 
You're not mm-hmm. going to let us in? All right, well, we're going in anyways. It's funny then that years later, they are in fact in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, they are. <laughs> it's funny because a lot of things back then, those artists, they were saying certain things because they were not let in. And LL Cool J on Rock the Bells, which was also the anti-pop song, he's, he was dissing Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson. But then when he became pop, he got to meet all these people and praise them. So you like it's hindsight too, but at the time you got to understand like when people are pushed away, the the harder you push them away, the harder they're gonna push back, you know. So they come out and they diss you, saying if you're not gonna accept us, then f you and screw you, and we're gonna call you out. And that that's has always been part of hip hop too. Right. So you were growing up in the north end of Halifax at the time, and you were being surrounded by all this new music. At what point during this time do you begin to try making your own music? Uh, well, I, when I started seeing other people around me, because at that time, to, to be a rapper, I mean, like, nowadays you walk down the street and you say, you know, you could say, I'm a rapper, and your friend would be like, hey, yeah, cool, I'm a rapper too, watch. And they would start to rap, even though they can't rap, right? Mm-hmm. The mentality is different now. Back then, um, in that, well, in Halifax, I'm sure, and a lot of other places, when you heard like somebody like Grandmaster Cass spit rhymes, you didn't have the guts to say, oh, I could rhyme too, watch me. You're kind of like, oh, that guy's a god. You know, that, that, that way that guy is, like, let's switch it and say comedy, okay? To go out there and somebody's like, have you seen Chris Rock's thing? And you're like... You know, I can do that. I'm a, I'm a comedian. Oh, yeah? We'll prove it. And he starts telling jokes. That person knows if you're not funny, you're going to be put right on the spot and told you're not funny. And you're going to put your head down going, yeah, I was just joking. You know, with rap, it's kind of changed. But at the beginning, you don't call yourself a rapper because if you weren't a rapper, you got clowned on. And nobody back then wanted to be clowned on. People don't have shame now. There's no shame in people's game now. But back then, if... If Melly Mel said a rhyme, you you appreciated it, and you didn't you didn't say ah screw him you know you know I could do that. So for longest time, you had to see other people around you, and see what if somebody was going to be the first one out the gate, and if you if it was somebody that you knew, that's when you kind of said uh oh. So is it cool that we can call ourselves rapper now? We're not going to offend people. We're not going to offend Melly Mel and Kraz if we say we're rappers. Even when Run DMC came out, they got no love from from Kumo D, Kaz, and all those guys because they paved the way. And Run DMC came out, and they were put also put in a position where they were not accepted, so they bum-rushed the door. So in Halifax, we waited until somebody actually did shows. When we saw that, of course, the first reaction was, you ain't no rapper. Sit down. You suck. But then after that, you see them do two, three, or four, or five shows. You're like, okay, maybe maybe we can be rapper. Maybe it's realistic goal now. So would that impact have been seeing somebody like African Bombada come to perform at the casino theater? That was one, but it, it, it kind of was... A few months before that, because there's a group called the Care Crew from here, right? Right. Uh, and I remember the first time I even saw the name Care Crew, and it was written on the wall in the hallway and said, Care Crew sucks. 
So I said, who's care crew? And then at some point, maybe a few weeks later, I would be walking home and there was an open parking lot jam somewhere. And these guys are performing. And I would, oh, what's going on? And I see guys rapping on stage and a DJ. And I'm like, oh, are these guys from New York? First question, not are they from Halifax? Because the reality of with you, rapper in Halifax didn't exist then. So I said, where are these guys from? Oh, they're from the square. They're from here and they're that good? Yeah. And that then from there, my, my hmm moment happened. Then after that, when I already knew who they were and saw them perform, after that, that's when the Bambada thing happened. They were the first choice of somebody local to open up for them because they were the only choice. Tell me about somebody else in Halifax, Digby D, and what kind of influence he had on you. He, okay, he was old, he's older than me by, let's see, at the time I was maybe, when I first started practicing DJing, I was 14. He would have been just graduating high school. He was probably in grade 12 on his way, you know, getting, getting his uh, high school diploma or whatever. So he lived just like a block away from me. Uh, I used to go to his shows. I used to see him in pictures with some of my friends. So I knew he was in my circle of friends. Uh, I went to a basement jam uh, and met my own crew after I was, I felt like I was good enough to like show people because you don't come out and being terrible because people will never accept you. First impressions are everything. So ended up that because the word starts spreading that I was the guy that you got to see this white guy. He's really good. You really got to see him. And they got to him and he, and he invited me to his place in the, in the square. So let me see what you got. So I brought some records and I spun in his room on his turntables and he was impressed. And he said, co-sign for me. I said, you, you want to come over and practice on these turntables on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever? Because I had cheap, I had really cheap turntables. They weren't even designed for like what I wanted to do. And he had the real thing. So he would let me come over maybe once a week and DJ on his stuff. And from there, because he was DJing for MCJ at that time, they were in a group, the odd time MCJ would come by Tony's place while I was there. And then I met them. So I said, I, I go to you guys a show and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I know you guys, you know, I remember you, you're in my older brother's class. And from there, you know, we started to, everybody started to know each other in the scene because the city is big, but it's not that big. Yeah, so you start to learn the craft, and we talked about the Bombada performance and the care crew as well. Tell me about the Uptown Festival in 86 then, and how that played a role in your development. Uptown Festival was, wasn't was my first public thing. It was my first, um, how, how would I explain it? I went to basement jams. They're like house parties where... You know, you go to a host party, you know half the people, half of them you don't, right? And I've been to a few of those before going to the Uptown Festivals because when I went to the Uptown Festivals before I was a DJ, I would go and watch other people that were the top dogs. So they would recognize my face 
and know, oh, you were so-and-so's brother or this, that. But they didn't know me as the DJ. So when I finally did a show at the Uptown Festival, people were like, hey, why are you sitting up on stage? I'm like, oh, you go, you'll see. I'm like, wait a minute, he's a DJ now? When did you become a DJ? Because <laughs> I, I practiced for two and a half years at home and didn't tell anybody. Only my close friends knew. But I didn't want to come out and be whack. So I waited until I was better than what I felt, if not better, but a <laughs> in a challenge way, a threat to other DJs. I wanted to be that good before I came out because you get one first impression. So I did a show at the Uptown Festival when it was at Club 55. And at that show, I... I was with my group at the time, Down By Law. It wasn't all the members there, because one of them, Fizz, was in Montreal. So I, I performed with my group. We're still new. We knew the technical side of being good, but we didn't know the stage side. So there was a lot of mistakes we did on stage. And, you know, we're kind of clowned on because we're the, you know, the youngest of the groups or whatever. But we did as good as we what we could and we kind of understood because we're the youngest ones there like older guys are not going to take us serious right away they're going to make you pay your dues which is another thing people don't understand is back then if you're the new guy you gotta expect people are not going to accept you right away people think right off the gate the you know you're going to be the first rapper first performance you're going to get like a sea of people saying ho and that didn't happen for us at the mm -hmm. very beginning we understood that when we did that show, the guys running the show were older and kind of looked as like we were some young punks. So there would be times where we're rapping and they turn down our volume on purpose just to clown on us to see if we can handle the heat. That was our first show. I want to talk about the current state of Halifax. How do you feel about the music coming out of Halifax compared to at other points in its history? Well, I don't know a lot of new artists. Like I said, I don't I don't go out all the time. So these new artists, I can only tell you from 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 when I started up until I don't want to even give a time where I have to cut cut it off because it was a gradual of just you know of I'm not around type of thing, and that slowly started to happen of me just not keeping track started to happen around my last compilation which dropped in 2005 that wasn't my last release that was my last compilation of just halifax people and that was my last i'm out every night with everybody night from then i started concentrating more on new brunswick because they had a scene growing and halifax was already self-sustaining and there was a lot of people around in 2005, like Fax 4, Classified, and a whole bunch of people. And like, they, I, I helped when they needed my help. But at that point, I'm like, okay, Halifax is self-sustaining. Let me move on to the next people who need help. Fredericton, they're going to be the next Halifax. So I went away for a little while. So that's why I can't really talk about people now because I see people now. And in my mind, I think... Where did they come from? Oh, this must have been when I was gone. So I don't like to 
talk so much about new people when I don't have all the facts on who just wants to get shouted out and who's really doing work. Right. Not my place, especially for Halifax. I know people are very, this is kind of with the interview of Halifax, why people were so sensitive. Yeah. Some names get mentioned and the people who don't uh, get mentioned think, you know, why not me? So I can only tell from Halifax about a certain point and then go backwards. Mm-hmm. But as far as people who came out this year, really, I, I can't even name, I, I can't, I can't name anybody, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not on Facebook every day. So, you know, I don't, I'm more aware with what's going on in the UK because I'm on a UK label right now. I'm more aware of what's going on in Brooklyn and because I'm working with Brooklyn artists now and this artist from Philly that I've worked on, worked with for a long time. So that's kind of where my focus currently on music is right now oh. and of course on new brunswick but halifax i'm i'm kind of out of touch recently mm-hmm. i don't really want to be the spokesperson on recent halifax i'd rather give that to somebody like iv because he's more in the position of being in the circles of what's going on and a few other people that are just doing weekly stuff in halifax and i give that to like fester or ghetto socks who could tell you more about current you know what I mean? Right, and that's fair. Uh, you did mention helping artists who needed help, and from my own experience, speaking to guys like Uncle Fester and Scratch Bassett and Classified, I've heard over and over again about how an instrumental part of their development was learning from guys like you and Buck 65 and 62. Uh, Scratch told me a little bit about your old space at the Kyber upstairs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, why was it important for you to take all these artists under your wing? You know what? It, it wasn't... At first somebody put the idea in my head because somebody's got to spark the idea at the time i had all the equipment i was already in a group my my group down by law so i'm working with my group i have all the equipment but and i paid for all the equipment so i just seen a lot of people put their hope in mcj and cool g when they left and they would come up to me and i and i'll be trying to promote my work and they'd be like oh yeah my little sister got an album coming out and they would show me mcj and cool g's card and i think they thought because they got a card from them they were guaranteed a release on capital records i don't i don't need to explain the importance of how big capital records was at the time beastie boys was on capital records the beatles was on capital records mcj and cool g was on capital records and i think people took that like this is our this is our route out of the hood and people these were people getting cards thinking that they got a card that said you know mcj cool g official artists of you know Capitol Records, that they thought, even though they never met MCJ and Cool G, that they could quit their job because they were going to get saved by their record deal. And when that started happening, and people slowly started to figure out after a year or two, when they didn't come back home, that this was not going to happen. You have to go out and do the work. There's no piggybacks. It's not there. They're on tour with Vanilla Ice and Hammer and all those guys at that time. They had no time to come back to Halifax. And I understood that, but not everybody did. So they were like, well, I guess this rap dream is over. Let me let me go back work at the bank or, you know, whatever. So I noticed that this scene started dying because people didn't understand how things worked. And it wasn't until this guy, 
I had a record label, the rock record label, put in my put in my head and on in Rich's Buck Sixty Five's mind, he had a meeting with us and said, you know, well, Joe, you got the equipment. Rich, you got the um, tool to promote everything because you got the biggest rap show in Halifax on radio. Why don't we just all pull? Why don't we all just pull our resources together? Joe, if you record all these people for free, then we're going to have 12 artists. And if you do that, then Rich don't have to pay for promotion because he has a radio show. And I, well, the guy, Rob Jeans, he had, he was on a label. He helped run a label called Cinnamon Toast Records, which was kind of like the grunge rock label in Halifax. And he said, well, what I'll do is I'll fund it. I can't do it through Cinnamon Toast Records because they don't want to really do rap but i know how to run a label so let's do it and it wasn't until he pitched that idea to me and i said oh okay yeah that, that sounds like it could work let's just see if let's throw our um line in the water and see which fish bite and then we had an audition at ckdu and that's when everybody that had talent came up they saw the door was open and then we all helped each other so it wasn't like you know I'm here to help the scene because it was, I wasn't the first guy to think of that idea. Rob Jeans brought it to me and said, why don't we do this? Maybe this might kickstart the scene because nowadays you can Google how to run a label, how to get started. You could download programs. Everything's on Google. We didn't have Google then. We didn't even have the internet. The internet superhighway or whatever was pronounced, it wasn't, wasn't out yet. So we didn't have books on how to make it, how to run a label, how to make things happen, how to start a scene. So it was just trial and error. Mm-hmm. And that's part of that. But but then you continue having your door open at a place like the Kyber for people to come in and learn from you, you know, see how you're producing and then pick that up themselves. That seems to me like that's something that doesn't happen everywhere. Because once again, people don't understand how it works. P, the, the, there's a lot of new people. Okay, like say, let me do, let me just uh, explain Uncle Fester. Uncle Fester used to go to my shows before he was a DJ, and he was just an audience member, kind of like when I used to go to the shows in the North End, and I would watch these grown-ups do their stuff, right? So it was an inspiration. He got inspired by the right people, the right people that had the right frame of mind, because I was not a selfish person, right? There's new artists now their whole thing is before i'm a rapper before i'm a fan of this music i'm a hustler and for me last time i looked in the dictionary under hustler it's somebody who sells real estate that's worthless so there's a lot of new people that just don't care they don't have the mentality that me 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 these are the people that you know that watch videos on TV of people flashing money and gold saying, wouldn't you like to be like me? And if that's your thing, cool. But if you see the long-term, the long-term effect of having that mentality, you're going to be, you know, you're stepping on people to get to the top. And that has been going on for a little while already, which is kind of, it's not the main reason why we don't have a scene now, but it's definitely a contributor. As far as the Kyber goes, how important was it to have a place like that for the growth of hip-hop in Halifax? Well, before I had my place at the Kyber, I was already part of the Kyber in some form or another for a very long time. It just so happened that I was able to rent a space there because I loved the space so much. I had, 
before I had my space there, going back to the 80s, it used to be a haircut shop. So I was already aware of that building. I used to get my haircut there. Then in the 90s, after the next the building next to it caught on fire, and it became kind of like a, a torched building where people, homeless people used to sleep in. Uh, we would have parties. And this is kind of like, I don't want to really compare it to this, but this is the first thing I can think of. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Beat Street. No, no, I haven't. Okay, there's a scene in Beat Street where they go into an abandoned building and they set up shop to do a party. They don't have no permits. It's the, the building and the city don't care about what... You know, they're so busy making money. They're not following. They don't really care about hip-hop. So we don't care about the city's rules. So at first, the Kyber was kind of like we would do parties and then learn along the way the politics. So we had a lot of great parties. and You know, everything was run the right way now. They have liquor laws and all that stuff. But the Kyber started out as the place where we would centralize everything and just do our thing because we were we were rejected by by the music politics in Nova Scotia. They didn't even have a hip hop category, and when at the time they did, they gave it to a fiddle player. So we knew it's like the city's not out for us. Forget it. We're not asking nothing from the government. No, this is our thing. Once we became self-sustaining as just being our thing. You could bring a big name act to Halifax. Most of those people wouldn't even show up because they were too busy at our show. That's how strong our scene was at some point. So fresh off of that, when we're still gliding off of that mentality, I had a studio at the Kyber. So I became, I became like the guy to go to. Also helped that the main club in the city was just downstairs from my place. So you go downstairs to the club. Let's see what Joe's doing. Go upstairs, knock on my door. I'm in the middle of a recording session with Classified and Ground Squad and Caspa and Scratch Bastard and Buck 65 and 6-2 and the vet crew. And once people started to know where I was, that's that was almost like the central place. There was people I never even knew. They would knock on my door and say, hey, are you Joe Run? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, can I just sit through one of your recording sessions? And I'm like, let me check your pockets, make sure you're not you know, some shady guy. All right, come on in. And they walk in. They would see the people that they bought records. They bought their records sitting there hanging out with us. And it was kind of like this. At some point, this happened in New York, too, where Rick Rubin's dormitory was the place you wanted to go to. Because you would sit him down and get his undivided attention, play his demo. And a lot of people I know as well have done that in New York. So I picked up that and I applied it for here. Because when I knew I was the guy to go to, I wasn't going to try to, you know, try to make money off of people coming in and saying, oh, I want to see you. I want to watch your recording session. Well, that'll be $10. I wasn't like that. It was like, well, if you're an honest guy, you're not going to try to steal nothing or or light my couch on fire or something, come on in. Do you think Halifax is missing something like that right now? It definitely is. But I can, I understand why it, it's like that, though. Because at some point, when you don't keep track of helping people, my last studio was broken into. 
and it was an inside job. I still don't know. I still don't know exactly who did it, but at some point, when you just let everybody in, somebody's going to ruin it for everybody. So after that happened, I I couldn't have an open studio anymore, and I was hoping somebody else would pick up that torch. And for a little while, Classified did that, but then he became a background guy, and he didn't want to be a background guy. That's one thing that I never explained to him is when you're helping everybody, everybody's out in the front, you're in the back. He had a goal to become a front guy, but he couldn't do that if he was going to be taking the torch for what I was doing. So he did it for a little while, kind of was like, well, there's no way I'm going to really make money off of this if I'm background because nobody's going to know who I am. So then he put down that torch or maybe gave it to somebody else and he went for self. And that's kind of what I'm doing right now is I'm going for self because I don't want to be... I mean, people never interview me about my music now. (laughs) I'm not pointing this to you, but it's always about Joe. Let's talk about history. Let's talk about history. It's never what what has Joe put out in the last year or what's about to come out. And I'm starting to go away from that as well. And like once I, once that studio break-in happened, my eyes opened and I just kind of put a one last cap compilation and said, okay, this is my last one. Get on there, everybody. Okay, now it's time to move on and focus on me. Mm-hmm. As far as the actual music coming out of Halifax, uh, there have been things that people have pointed to as reasons why Halifax hip-hop has grown differently from somewhere like Toronto. You know, part of that is the geography of being so far on the coast and having its own pocket to grow, sort of away from the influence of anywhere close to it. Uh, and part of that as well, I think, is the size. It's it's not really that big, and so it's more close-knit. Well, in the bigger cities, the tribes are are smaller because nobody trusts each other because... In the city, you can get eaten up, right? If you're in a small, well, if you're in a city, a smaller city like Halifax, if somebody rips off somebody, chances are that person knows somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. And when people come here, you have to be pretty clueless to how Halifax work to just come here and expect to be successful in ripping people off. Like there was a promoter from Toronto that try to do shows here for a little while he was successful and he put out posters that biggie smalls was coming when when notorious big was was huge and his success was on the rise and they would sell tickets here then the day of the show fans are all outside waiting to go to the show and the promoter's on his way back home on a plane with all the money Hmm. biggie's not aware of this show and that happened for a little while here and People just figured out, okay, well, um, we can't keep letting this happen. We, In order for us to stop that happen, we need to have our own shows and we need to make our locals the celebrities. So we work differently than somewhere in Toronto. And it's, it's funny when you look back at it too because you wouldn't see this mentality happening until people learn from the bad and then adjust to the climate. So it's just what ended up happening is Halifax works a different way than Toronto. And and I stop at Montreal because Montreal is more of like how Toronto works more than how the East Coast works. So our East Coast scene starts when you're going west to east. New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI has a scene, Newfoundland has a scene. So we're, we kind of like all at some point started to tie in people from the, the Maritimes because 
we're all kind of in the same boat where Newfoundland's not going to get respect from Toronto or maybe now, but at the time, you know, when in the nineties, Toronto was trying to make it on their own. They can't be worried about us. Right. Uh, but what about the development of the sound or the diversity of the sound, uh, the way Halifax hip hop tends to sound quite different from what you would hear in the mainstream. Why do you think that is? Well, it depends on what area you're talking about. Um, my influence is, you know, I didn't grow up listening to Biggie and Tupac. I was already an adult, you know, already re- on my way to my 30s. So I grew up in a t- totally different environment. I was more in a tribe called Quest and Dela and Common and, you know, Brand Nubian and that stuff, Special Ed, uh, you know, Wu, Wu-Tang. I was not into Puffy. I was not into Biggie. I was not into Tupac. I didn't really like gangster rap at the time because I could see, I had the hindsight of seeing what kind of damage it would do of putting the thought into kids that would be later the rappers to be, trying to be like them but not living the lifestyle. Let me rephrase it, I guess. Do you feel as though being out on the coast and being separate from some of these influences, like if you're close to Toronto or some other major cultural center, do you feel like there's a little more freedom in terms of exploring your own sound versus trying to conform to whatever else the current sound is? Okay, let me explain the current sound. Well, not so much the current sound, but the stereotypical sound of Nova Scotia. Uh, Anne Murray. Okay. Uh, Rita McNeil only switched up in the the 90s to be Sloan. Most people think of Nova Scotia and think that. Mm -hmm. A lot of artists in Halifax are frustrated as hell. And you can see some of this frustration sometimes that we don't want to be known as fishermen because we're not. There's a black community here. At some point, there was an interview on TV on Oprah and she somebody wrote in a letter or something and said, you know, why don't you cover the black community in Nova Scotia? She was like, there are black people in Nova Scotia? Like she kind of joked around. Mm-hmm. And then they brought her, brought her here and she was shocked. She was like, there's a whole history here. Oh my God, I didn't even know about this. So Halifax works differently because we have different powers that be to stop from us from being successful. Toronto has a, a history that very different from ours and they're right on the border of the united states so there's a little more of united states leakage into their history at some some city level or whatever because they have a subway system so the the lifestyle is different out there we don't have a we don't have a subway system we're known for fiddles and you know old cake parties and some people here enforce the stereotype some people want people to forget that stereotype that stereotype is heard the black community too because people only know these histories and the city enforces and only wants people to remember Halifax is that. So we have a whole other can of worms we got to worry about compared to everywhere else in Canada. I don't know how, I'm sure Vancouver works a different way. Mm-hmm. They're by a coast too, but I'm sure fiddles is not their thing. They're not known for fiddles. We are. We're trying to kill that stereotype. Yeah, I get that. Uh, When I think about the diversity of hip-hop in Halifax, I'm not thinking about 
fiddles and bagpipes, more about the sheer difference you would hear from someone like Ghetto Socks to someone like KO to someone like Classified. It all sounds very different. You know, they've all gone their own way. Well, that's that does that's more easy to explain. That's you know, whatever music you're a fan of, at first you try to copy that type of music. Then when you start to become in your own lane, you start to break off little pieces of that, but you kind of keep some of that with you. So you're going to hear somebody that has just like double time 808 beats. They might be influenced by a dipset. You know, maybe they don't like dipset now, but you're going to hear some of that influence still in the music. And that has nothing to do with, you know, tapes coming into me from New York. That's you just turning on the TV, watching video shows, saying, I identify with this. That's that's my lane right there. Do you think part of that is having that freedom to explore? I guess what I'd assumed is that there's a little less pressure to conform to a certain sound when there is no predetermined sound in that area. You're free to explore in your own way. Okay, let me, let me explain this then. Uh, back when I first started this, there was one thing. It was just called hip-hop. There was, it was not boxed into categories. If you rapped about the street, you were, you were hip-hop. If you rapped about, I don't know, walking down the street one day and there's no violence in your lyrics, but, you know, you, you meet this girl, you take her out, blah, 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 blah. You weren't compared to the guy with the gangster. You weren't saying, okay, that's gangster, that's street, and this is not. That didn't exist when I first started. So that all started happening on its own. Now, why people put people in categories now or saying, why does this have this style? What is That's what happened in the 90s. After Biggie and Pac died, hip-hop had a big split in the middle. You had to either be really, really gangster or really, really nerdy. So when they both passed away, there was a nerdy scene that that Buck 65 and 6-2 gravitated to, and that was the Sebitones thing, the nerd rap thing, you know, where you're saying big words, your metaphors, everything. And then the other one was talking about how hard you were. Along with each one, there was a music that went with it. The nerdy stuff started kept the whole element of dusty and dirty sound whereas the other side would have a very polished keyboard sound type of thing and it just went with it after that split happened it was take your side mm-hmm. and you could see that with people in Halifax you know what their influence are you could tell somebody that was influenced by Pac by the first 15 seconds of their music or not even so much Maybe not so much influenced by Pac himself, but somebody that came up through Pac, came up for somebody, the stairs that led in that direction. You could hear, these guys want to be referred to as street. Okay, these guys ended up being labeled as backpackers. And I always, I have a podcast and I always say, don't call me backpacker. Technically, uh, you would you would listen to my music and that's the first thing you would think of, but I, when I started doing this, there was no label. So I don't like people saying, okay, well, Joe's not gangster. Joe's backpack or Joe's gangster because he did this and he said that. Don't put me in boxes. I'm, that's, not, that's, not how I, that's not how I see it because that's not how it was when I grew up. So this is some kind of new school thing of somebody having a style and you have to break it down in little pieces. When I heard Rakim first time, I didn't break him down. I, 
I never questioned what his real name was, what his background was. It was good music. And that's all it was. And I, when I hear Halifax artists, I don't break them down like that. I don't, I don't want to break them down like that. If you're dope, you're dope. If you're whack, you're whack. And that's, that's how I see it. So anything other than that, that's somebody, that's for you to ask somebody else. Like I see things one, you're good, you're good. Yeah, and I think that's the perspective I mean. That's the bottom line. What matters is whether it's good or not, not whether it fits a certain mold, uh, which is what's interesting to me. Well, the politi- when people bring these politics into it, elite, that's kind of like the complication of this article, too, that, that Adria wrote, is when you see who gets offended and who... When, when you see people get offended, it's how they get offended. Some people have... The, completely lashed out at her straight up insulted her there's some people that just were like see man they just don't know she just don't know they don't insult her they said a good it's a nice try but she didn't quite get it you kind of see you know who where people stand and where they stand has a lot to do with what music they listen to and their brain upbringing so that goes along with their musical style too for me i stayed as neutral as possible because I'm from the era where I didn't put things in boxes. This whole put things in box thing, that's a 1990s thing. And hell, it holds back a lot of people by putting things in boxes. So I, I tend to just not even acknowledge it or recognize it. You're good, you're good. That's, 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 I leave it there. Okay, the, the final thing I want to ask you about is something that happened around January. I'm sure you've probably been asked about this already, but it's pretty cool seeing Questlove showing you love on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> what was your reaction to seeing that? I didn't. I, I don't want to say I saw it coming, but there was a bunch of incidences that happened that led to that. And uh, where do I even start with that? Um, I got to shout out um, Scratch Bastard because he helps. He he goes on tour. He tours the world, and he meets up with people. And because he's from Halifax, I do remixes. I just don't make beats. I take songs that exist and I make them better. That's that's the only way I could think of doing. That's part of my knowledge of being in, in a studio. So I made some remixes for songs and made instrumentals for songs that people wanted at karaoke for a long time, but they couldn't access the instrumental because there was it was never released. So I, for for one, it was. I remade the instrumental for Rock the Bells by LL Cool J. It's a classic, but the B-side never had the instrumental. There's tons of people who would just die to just perform that at karaoke because it's such a classic. So I remade it. My man Filmos put it on his website, and from there, and when Scratch Bastard had the MP3, and when he go DJ places, he played for people, and he often DJed for celebrities. So their ears were open and they heard some of my remixes and they would go to him and say, how the hell did you get Rock the Bells instrumental? Do you know Rick Rubin? I'm like, no, I got this from this guy in Elephant Joe. And they're like, give me his phone number. Let me talk. Let me see what else he got. And it started building from there. It started with Jazzy Jeff, then went to Z Trip. You know who Z Trip is? Yeah, yeah. So he's with he's with the camp with Cut Chemist and Shadow and the West Coast. Uh, then Questlove popped up and somebody showed me a video of 
on Jazzy Jeff's website of him at a sound check playing the stuff for Questlove. So I'm like, that's how we heard it. And then some other things happened after that where people contacted me and they heard my remixes because I remix other artists, right? Like famous artists, uh, classic songs, but I do my own version of it. And I did a remix for Tila Rock. He had a classic record out called It's Yours. He heard it. He reached out to me. So anybody that I did a remix for, of just for, it was originally for my own thing, it ended up that the artist heard it, and then things started to grow from there, and it's continuing to grow from there. So where do you see all this unfolding for you in the future? Uh, I guess the best way to describe that is um, sledding down a steep hill with whole bunch of trees (laughs) you can't see 10 meters ahead of you but you're going fast and things are happening you know you're not going to hit any trees but you don't know when the thing is going to level out so i'm just riding it out and see what happens i really don't have any expectations that's best that's the best way to go in with this type of thing because it had this happened 20 years ago i would have messed it up already Mm -hmm. i would have definitely messed it up because my mentality was different and i was starving to get people to hear us and you know being a little pushy and you know when you're young and you just don't know any better and you're wet behind the ears but when you're older you're you're kind of like your your mentality is very different You, you you're conscious of how you present yourself so i don't i have people message me saying oh joe you gotta let them hear my demo can you send Questlove my demo i wouldn't even know how to answer that because i've never been given that opportunity so how would I give that opportunity to someone else before me? I've always put myself before the people, but I saw where that got me for the longest time. It really didn't get me nowhere. I met a lot of friends, but now I'm trying to get myself heard. And the stuff that I'm getting known for now is not necessarily stuff that hip-hop guys that approach me in Halifax would even listen to. Questlove likes my remix of my disco stuff. Mm-hmm. My De La Soul instrumentals. For somebody to hand me a tape to, can you show this to Questlove? And you're rapping about killing people. And I already know, like, that's not what he wants to hear. Yeah. It's kind of this interest came from left field. I understand where it came from because they're my age. So they grew up in disco era like I did. And I'm taking it back there because it was a simpler time. So they like my remixes because. It reminds them of a simpler time. So unless you're our age, you'll never understand. It looks like an opportunity for rappers to come up, but they don't really want to listen to other rappers. You know, like they want to, they want stuff that they can appeal to. And for some freakish reason, they appealed to my remixes. Well, it'll certainly be interesting to see how it all unfolds for you. I wish you the best. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, dude. Thanks. Well, there you have it. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, however you listen to us. Help us out in leaving a rating on our iTunes page, too. If you want to know more about Joe Run, you can go to thecomeupshow.com. We've got another feature on him there, plus lots more to check out. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at The Come Up Show. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 